Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series that we are doing on the book of Acts. Uh, we have covered almost eight of the 28 chapters in Acts. We hope to finish with chapter 8 tonight, and we are going chapter by chapter right through the entire book. And as always, I want to mention the uh, studies, both the audio and the notes are available for all of these studies uh, through several different means. You can find everything at our website at new-life-ministries.org. You can also listen in live on Wednesday nights, uh, either by telephone, this is a free conference call, and also you can log into the internet at mixlr.com and follow the broadcast name there of New Life Ministries. And all of the previous studies, not only this Bible study series, but previous series, are recorded and are stored there in addition to our website. You can also subscribe to our New Life Ministries podcast, and that way you get all of the updates automatically, both the notes as they're added and the audio recordings. So, with that being said, we are now on page 89 in the notes, if you're following there, and we want to finish part 6 tonight, which will, uh, actually, pardon me, we're not going to finish part 6, we're going to finish chapter 8. Uh, part 6 covers chapter 9 also, which we will hopefully look at next time, but we do want to try to finish off chapter 8 tonight. And before we do, uh, I came across something very interesting today. I, I, I like it how every day God drops something new on you just to encourage you, to bless you, to stir you up, to press on, to seek Him more diligently. Um, in one of my science classes, it was actually in the physics class, uh, we were learning about a very famous scientist from the 18th century. He was an English physician and actually did a lot of uh, ground-breaking work on theories concerning the nature of light and some, some really uh, cool things he, he learned. But we found out something very interesting about the man. Um, by the age of four... He had read the Bible cover to cover two times. You heard me right. By the age of four, he had read the entire Bible through twice. So maybe that'll encourage us uh, to read the Bible a little more. Maybe even encourage us to have a little more faith for our kids to read the Bible. Um, now, he was obviously an exceptional young man to have accomplished that by the age of four. But uh, I think sometimes we underestimate what our children and our young people are capable of doing. So uh, let that be an encouragement to all of us to read and study our Word. All right, here we go. We have been looking at Philip, the evangelist. He was one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6. We're now down to six because one of them, Stephen, became the first martyr in the early church. Both Stephen and Philip, we have seen now, had very powerful ministries, way beyond delivering food and waiting on tables. Uh, a real anointing and a real power came on these two men, and they were used greatly to preach, and signs and wonders followed their preaching. And we, of course, saw that Philip was the pioneer who first took the gospel to Samaria. And with great signs and wonders and demons coming out, the sick being healed, uh, they had a great revival there in Samaria. Peter and John came down and prayed for all of them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they're having a great time. And at the height of that revival... God does something very strange 
But if you've walked with God for any length of time, it might not be quite that strange to you. And I want to read Acts 8 from verse 26 all the way down to the end of the chapter, which will take us all the way to verse 40. Acts 8, verse 26 to 40. Again, if you're following in the notes, we're at the bottom of page 89. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth." The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel to all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What a fascinating story. This chapter 8, I find, is very rich in revelation and just the testimonies of how the Holy Spirit was leading these men, how he was opening doors, opening up hearts. It's just amazing. And it should encourage and inspire all of us that God may use any number of means to enlarge, expand, and extend his kingdom. We saw at the start of this chapter, he used the death of Stephen and the great persecution that broke out that very same day to launch the people of God out from Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in Judea and Samaria and wherever they went. And God honored that preaching with signs and wonders and many, many new converts now outside of Jerusalem. But this is a strange ending to the chapter which centers around Philip and his ministry. And as I just mentioned earlier, he was used mightily by God in Samaria. They had a huge revival going on in Samaria. And at the height of that revival, an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and says, Go! Leave Samaria, leave the revival, go south to the road 
the desert road down toward Gaza. I wonder how many preachers would be willing to do what Philip did, to leave a full-blown, red-hot revival, Spirit of God is moving, miracles, signs, and wonders, and you're the man of the hour. You're the man of power. And suddenly, the Spirit of the Lord says, Go. I wonder how many would really be willing to leave all that, and how many would say, Oh no, that can't be the Lord. God needs me to stay right here in Samaria, because after all, this revival would have never happened without me. Oh, really? Oh, really? How deceived we can become in our pride, thinking that God needs any of us. He doesn't need us. He blesses us and allows us to be used by Him just to encourage us. He likes to include us in what He's doing, but He certainly doesn't need anyone. He didn't need Philip. He didn't need anyone. The revival would continue quite nicely without him. And yet, very often, preachers and ministers, they will hold on to their church, hold on to their revival, or hold on to their work, and what they don't realize is they begin to strangle it to death. We need to hold on very loosely to these things that God places in our trust. Doesn't mean we're being irresponsible. Quite the contrary. He was obeying the word of the Lord. And if God gives you a word, you better obey it, no matter how little sense it makes to your natural mind. And this didn't make any sense. At the height of revival, go. Go down to the desert. And Philip had in Samaria what every pastor dreams of. I want you to note the word crowds. He had crowds coming to hear him preach. Not five, ten, or twenty. Crowds, multitudes were coming to hear the preaching of Philip. Many, many, we're not even told how many, conversions miracles, demons coming out of people. We already read paralytics and cripples being instantly healed. Just imagine the testimony time in their services. And, you know, I can only guess, but sometimes God wants to protect His servant. And maybe, just maybe, God was sheltering and protecting Philip by removing him from Samaria. Because hearing all those testimonies, it might have gone to his head. And his head may have started to swell up a little bit, thinking, wow, look at what a mighty man of God I have become. Look at all the miracles, signs, and wonders God has worked through me. God knows pride has destroyed many a man or woman of God. And God will often yank us out of the revival and hide us somewhere out in the desert to protect us from all of that. You know, the greatest trial, the Bible says, is not persecution, tribulation, poverty, deprivation, affliction, or sickness. The greatest trial is success. That's the most difficult trial for you and me to pass. Success. When everybody's praising us, when everybody's saying, Whoa, what a mighty ministry Philip has. That's the time to run and hide. Hide yourself, lest you get a swollen head. And the angel of the Lord suddenly appears to Philip and says, Go. Go out on the desert road. Just start heading toward Gaza. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what was waiting for him out in the desert. But thank God for the next verse. 
verse 27 says he started out. So he started out. He obeyed the word of the Lord. Much to his credit, this man of God was willing to lay everything down on the altar, say goodbye to the revival, and go out into the desert. Little did he know, he was leaving crowds of people for one person. That's a powerful message right there. Leaving crowds for one person. You see, we often make these judgments. We, we like to talk about numbers. And, you know, I've been around many, many pastors over the years. And inevitably, when you get together with a group of pastors, one of the first questions is, how many do you have? How big is your church? How big is your congregation? How big is your following? And, you know, we try to outdo one another. Oh, well, you know, I've got about 18,000 on most Sundays. How many do you have? Oh, we're pushing 23,000. How many do you have, Pastor Wayne? Uh, Maybe 15 or 20 on a good Sunday? Really doesn't matter whether it's 20 or 20,000 or one. And what we're going to see in this story, well, we're going to see a number of things, but one of the things I see very clearly is in God's book, one man is just as important as 100,000. You see, God doesn't make these kind of judgments based on numbers. Oh, Lord, I can't leave Samaria. There are crowds there that need me. No, they don't need you, Philip. I'll take care of the crowds. You just do what I told you to do. Go out into the desert. And he starts to understand, by and by, that God has a plan. What we're about to study here is what is often called a divine appointment. I love divine appointments, especially when they only involve one person. I love them. And you see the sovereign hand of God arranging all kinds of circumstances, the timing, the place, the individuals. There's no way it could be a coincidence. It's an appointment. It's a divine appointment. It says in verse 27, so he started out, he left Samaria, he's on his way into the desert, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This was not a coincidence. It was not a casual encounter. This man had been handpicked, sovereignly placed right there at that instant in the path of Philip. He was an Ethiopian, a very influential Ethiopian. And this one man was the whole reason why God was sending Philip out into the desert. And as I mentioned a while ago, this shows me how much God loves one man. How much God cares about one person. He'll move heaven and earth for one person. And he moved Philip right out from the midst of a great revival, out into the desert, just to meet this Ethiopian man. On the surface, it may have seemed, to Philip at least, this was a big detour, maybe it was a confusion, maybe he didn't hear the voice of the Lord correctly, but now he's about to find out this is a divine detour. This is no mistake, this is no coincidence. These paths are being crossed by God. An Ethiopian eunuch out in the middle of the desert, now face to face with Philip the Evangelist. This was no ordinary man. 
He was a very powerful, very influential man. And Philip is going to lead him to Christ. And remember, this man is on his way back to Ethiopia. Guess what's going back to Ethiopia now? The good news of the gospel. A witness for Christ is now being sent to Ethiopia. But more about that a little later in the story. This Ethiopian, we are told, was a top-ranking official for the queen in his country, Ethiopia. He was in charge of the treasury of the queen. We're given the queen's name, Candace. All we are told about this uh, man is he's an Ethiopian eunuch, and he's in charge of the treasury. That's all we're told. He was no ordinary person, very powerful, obviously very intelligent, hand-picked by God to receive the good news through Philip. And we can only presume, and I think this is a safe assumption, this man was so mightily touched by God, there's no way he kept quiet when he got back to Ethiopia. Absolutely, he's going to share the gospel with everybody there after what happens to him. Now, we are now witnessing what I just told you is called a divine appointment. Philip meets this man, and I want you to notice how carefully this whole thing is scripted, just like a play. Every line is being written by God. Look at the next part of the play. This man, the Ethiopian eunuch, he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. We're led to believe that he's obviously a Gentile, but he's a convert to Judaism, and he had gone, as any good convert would have done, back to Jerusalem to worship. We're not told exactly why, whether it was for Passover or for one of the other religious feasts, but he's gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he's now on his way back to Ethiopia. And it just so happens, or it's being designed and controlled by God, on his way, he's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet as he's riding along in his chariot. I want you to notice the perfect timing of the Holy Spirit in every detail of this encounter of this divine appointment. Nothing could possibly be a chance event. Now, here's the Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, just when Philip comes along. And the Holy Spirit tells Philip, and this is something we see all through the book of Acts, how these men and women are being directly guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking to them, telling them, go here, do this, wait here, meet this person, go to this address. Those that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He heard him. So he's reading it out loud as he's bouncing along in his chariot. And Philip asks him a question. Do you understand what you are reading? By the way, we must really pray for one another that we can have this kind of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, we recognize this is the Spirit of God. And He may tell you, go stand near that car. Go down to that bus stop. Sit here on this bench. 
Go talk to that lady uh, at the checkout counter in the Safeway grocery store. The Holy Spirit will speak very specific things to us. We need to have that ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, just as Philip had here. So, he asks the eunuch a question. Do you understand what you are reading? How can I, the eunuch said, unless someone explains it to me? Oh, wow, what a beautiful setup. It doesn't get any better than that. How can I, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Let me tell you something. God is a door opener. And God is a heart opener. This is a concept you see throughout the book of Acts. The Lord opens people's hearts. He prepares them in advance so that when you're sent there, the work has already been done. You're entering into other men's labors. And sometimes it's so easy as what we're reading here. Jump up into the chariot and explain to me what I'm reading. How wonderfully God opened this door of opportunity for Philip now, out in the middle of the desert, to meet this one man who has been prepared by God to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So, he doesn't understand what he's reading. Philip does. He hears what he's reading, and he's now invited to jump up into the chariot and sit next to this very powerful, influential official and explain to him what he has been reading. You know... You never know what a day can bring into your life when you walk with the Lord. This day started off with Philip, I'm sure, having some questions in his mind. Lord, is this really you telling me to leave the revival and go down into the desert? Why? What am I supposed to do down in the desert? Am I supposed to meet someone, or what am I supposed to do? Well, we don't know that he asked all those questions. He just obeyed. He went out. But now, I want you to notice how dramatically Philip's life has changed in one single day. Suddenly, he finds himself riding along in the chariot with the treasurer of Ethiopia. (laughs) I tell you, God can do anything he wants with your life and mine. We might start off a very ordinary day, and the next thing you know, you're sharing the gospel with a senator, a congressman, the president, or the vice president. Yeah, God said we'll stand before kings and share the good news. We don't know what doors God wants to open for us. Be ready. Be prepared. I've been sharing this for some time now. Study the Word of God. Get yourself ready. You don't know what opportunity might suddenly open up for you. You might be on the bus, on the metro, standing out in a parking lot somewhere, and you're face-to-face with a very famous, powerful, influential person, and God has put you there to share the gospel with them. Study to show yourself approved unto God so you can rightly divide the word of truth when you're in that situation. Be prepared. Philip didn't have any time to get prepared. He was already prepared for this encounter. So here he is, riding along in the chariot with the treasurer of Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian says, I don't understand what I'm reading. Can you explain it to me? How can I understand what I've just read unless someone explains it to me? And here's where it really gets good. Oh, I love this stuff. He just happened not only to be reading from the prophet Isaiah, he just happened to be reading from Isaiah chapter 53, the great 
messianic chapter about the suffering Christ, the suffering Messiah, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, by his stripes we are healed. That's the chapter that he's reading as Philip jumps up beside him in the chariot. And what a lead-in. I don't understand what I'm reading. Can you explain this to me? And here's what he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Again, straight out of Isaiah chapter 53. All direct prophetic scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. And then the eunuch asks Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? You know, years ago, when I went with a team to Israel on a summer missions-slash-evangelistic trip, we had a huge stack of gospel tracts that we took with us that were printed in English on one side and in Hebrew on the other. And it was actually the entire 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And the title of the gospel tract was this very question, of whom is the prophet speaking? And that's all the tract said. It had Isaiah 53 with that question at the top. Who is the prophet talking about? Well, that's what the eunuch was asking Philip. And we passed out hundreds and hundreds of those tracts to Jewish people all over Israel. And it sparked some amazing conversations. And interestingly enough, most of the people that we met and talked with had never even heard of Isaiah. They had never read Isaiah. You might be surprised. Uh, I don't know how it is today, but I presume it's even worse. But most of the Jews we met in Israel at that time were very secularized. They were not what we would call orthodox or very religious Jews. They were kind of nominal Jews. They really didn't even know their scriptures. They didn't even know a whole lot of their own history. And most of the people we met had never heard any of these verses from Isaiah 53. So it was a tremendous opportunity, first of all, just to read a little bit to them from their own scriptures, and then to jump from there and say, who is Isaiah talking about? And then begin to show them, Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah was prophesying. Here it goes, verses 34 and 35 again. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Remember in Luke 24, when Jesus uh, was walking along with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's already risen from the dead, and he suddenly opens their eyes and he opens up the scriptures to them. And it says there in Luke 24, starting with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, he showed them from those scriptures 
many things concerning himself. So he would have shown them passages from the writings of Moses, messianic prophecies from the Psalms of David, and certainly I can almost with great assurance promise you Jesus would have used Isaiah 53 to show this was talking about me, the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant who came to die on the cross. Well, Philip is simply echoing that, and starting with Isaiah 53, he uses the very passage that the eunuch had been reading and told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus was that sheep led to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He was humiliated. He was deprived of justice. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His very life was taken away from him. And he's now risen from the dead. And it says in verses 36 to 39, the Ethiopian, without any argument, without any debate or opposition, he immediately believed everything that Philip told him. How do we know that? Let's read verses 36 uh, down to verse 39 again. As they traveled along the road, this is after Philip preached the good news to him, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. Again, not a coincidence. This has all been planned by the sovereign God. And let, let me remind you, they're in the desert. You don't normally find water in the desert. But that day they did. They found enough water to get into it. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Wait a minute. How did the eunuch know about baptism? Well, we can only speculate, and we've done this before, but whenever the gospel was preached, they preached certain basic truths every time. Foundational truths. They preached repentance. They preached faith in Christ. They preached baptism in water by immersion. And they preached the baptism in the Holy Spirit. All essential ingredients, essential parts of the gospel. So, I, I have absolute confidence, although the scriptures don't explicitly state it, I have great confidence that just as Philip would have done in Samaria, he preached Christ, he preached water baptism, and he preached baptism in the Holy Spirit. He baptized everybody in water in Samaria. We assumed also there he would have taught them about baptism, because that's part of the Great Commission. Teaching disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So evidently, he talked to the eunuch about repentance, faith in Christ, water baptism, and so as soon as the eunuch sees water, he says, look, here's water. What's keeping me? from being baptized today. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Now, let me pause for a minute. There are a number of very important points that we've already encountered here in Acts chapter 8 that we need to actually incorporate into our church doctrine and practice. What do I mean by that? Well, Many churches, they have a doctrine, whether it's written or unwritten, uh, they have a practice that goes something like this. Oh, 
Praise God. Johnny and Mary got saved last Sunday in church. We're now going to put them in the newcomers uh, or the new believers class where they're going to study the basic scriptures for the next 12 weeks. And then at the end of that 12 weeks, if they complete the course, they'll be ready for water baptism. Sounds pretty good, but it's not biblical. It's not at all biblical. And we've already seen cases in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, in Samaria earlier in this chapter, and now with this Ethiopian eunuch. The very day they repented and believed in Jesus, they were also baptized. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000, all in one day, came to Christ and took water baptism. So we see that same pattern here. No need for delay. No need for a series of classes on water baptism. Philip had only one question for the eunuch. When he sees the water, he says, Why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Only one condition. If you believe with all your heart, you're ready, man. You passed the test. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's all he said. Philip didn't say, now, now explain to me the six points of water baptism Let's go over the doctrine of water baptism again. Buried with Christ. Operation of God. Please explain to me everything I just told you about baptism. No! I just want to know, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. I believe that He is the Son of God. Okay. Verse 39. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch, and listen carefully to these words, because this will also help establish our church doctrine on water baptism and our church practice. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. That's pretty clear. They both went down into the water would have been a lot simpler if Philip just had a little cup of water and sprinkled a few drops on the eunuch's head or, you know, made a little cross with the water on his forehead, such as is done in many churches. I'm not trying to be mean or critical. I'm just trying to say, why not do it God's way, and why not do it the way they did it in the early church, because that is going to establish the apostolic way of doing things. The apostolic way throughout the book of Acts was repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and then, unless you are first baptized supernaturally with the Holy Spirit, get into the water and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit by total, complete immersion into the water. That's what the word baptism means. Baptism never, never, never means sprinkle, draw a little cross with water, or any such thing. Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dunk, to immerse, or to completely soak into something else. The only possible meaning for baptism is to be immersed into the water. And it certainly lines up perfectly with verse 39 here. When they came to this body of water, we're not told whether it was a lake or a pond or what it was, but it was enough water for two men to get into, because it says he gave orders to stop the chariot, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, 
and Philip baptized him. And if you're still having any doubts, verse 39 should remove that. When they came up out of the water. It's kind of hard to explain that any other way unless this was baptism by immersion. They got into the water. Philip dunked the man under the water and then they come up out of the water. Now, as soon as this baptism takes place, something very amazing happens next with Philip. And (laughs) this had to have made a lasting impression on this Ethiopian eunuch. Again, we're never given his name. We don't even know this man's name. But we do know that he became a genuine believer. He's the sole reason why the Spirit of the Lord sent Philip out into the middle of the desert just to meet this one man and lead him to Christ. Let me take you a little further. This also helps us on another point in establishing our church doctrine and our church practice concerning water baptism. Again, I'm not trying to be mean or critical, but many, many churches have adopted the practice of water baptism. Thank God for that. But they make it a big hoopla. It's a big ceremony, and they invite all the family and the friends, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And they tell the new converts who are being uh, baptized that this is your chance to be a public witness, to give public testimony before all your family and friends here tonight that you've become a believer in Christ. That's all good. Jesus said we're supposed to do that. But, I want you to notice, this baptismal service, it didn't have any audience. There was no one there. There were no bright lights, no cameras, no video. Uh, It was just Philip and the eunuch, and probably some other attendants that were traveling with him. But certainly this wasn't in a church. It wasn't a part of a church service. I want you to see the simplicity of this whole event. There was no ceremony at all. They saw a body of water. They stopped the chariot. They got down into the water. Philip baptized him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they got out of the water. They were not in a church. They were not in a fancy temple. They weren't surrounded by witnesses or a congregation. They didn't have a nice worship team playing some anointed music to sort of stir them up or help them feel good. They just got into the water and did their thing. And if you study this whole portion of Scripture very carefully, I think you'll see what God intended for water baptism to be. It's a very simple act. God doesn't want pomp and ceremony and glitter and crowds of people to detract from the power of the event. And later, they would learn from Paul writing to the Romans what really happened here. You were buried into the death and burial of Christ. You're risen by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. You have now identified with Christ in his death, in his burial, and also in his resurrection. And if you look over this portion carefully, I think you'll find it's very difficult to explain this baptism was anything but baptism by total immersion in water. And the whole thing starts with the eunuch spying a body of water and saying, look, there's water, plenty of water, enough water. What is hindering me from being 
baptized today? Well, just one question needed to be answered. Do you believe with all your heart? Yes, I do. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's it. That's enough. The ending of the story is really interesting. Verses 39 and 40. As they're coming up out of the water, notice again, the Holy Spirit is involved in every part of this story. The Spirit of the, of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> this man's having a great day. Wow. All in one day, he's had all of his questions answered. What he was reading from Isaiah, he now understands. He gives his heart to Jesus, an evangelist is sent all the way out into the middle of the desert to do that for him. And now he's taken water baptism. He's climbing back up into his chariot. And supernaturally, the Spirit of God whisks Philip away. He disappears. And actually, he drops him down in a town 30 miles away. If you look at a map at the back of your Bible and you look for uh, Azotus, that's where Philip was dropped down next by the Spirit of the Lord. 30 miles he traveled. 30 miles he was snatched out of the desert to his next assignment. And we're told when he was dropped down there, he kept right on doing what he had been doing preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. He never goes back to Samaria. Did the revival in Samaria die? Oh, I don't think so. Did the revival depend on Philip? No. God used Philip. God will use you and me, but as I mentioned earlier, he doesn't need any of us. And let me tell you, the church the work of God will do just well, just fine, without any of us. And if God wants us there, He'll keep us there, He'll use us there, but He doesn't need any of us. Now, Philip was miraculously, supernaturally translated. That's the best word I can come up with. He was translated through the air. We're not given any more details about what happened. It's just that he was suddenly snatched up. He disappeared from view, at least as far as the Ethiopian was concerned, and it didn't bother the Ethiopian a bit. He's rejoicing. He's having a wonderful time in the Lord. In the New American Standard Version, it reads this way, When they came up out of the water the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now, I, I like this because if you look at that word, snatched or took suddenly, it's the same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when he refers to the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it's translated, We will all be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Suddenly caught up or snatched up. It's the same identical Greek word, harpazo, used in both places. So, yes, Philip was, in a sense, raptured, not up to heaven, but just raptured out of the water to another town. And I think the New American Standard is probably the best translation. He was snatched away by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit could snatch Philip away 
30 miles from one town to the next. He can snatch you and me away in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the moment of the rapture. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And this is what uh, those scriptures say in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Caught up, I've put in bold print in your outline, that's the word, harpazo, snatched up, snatched away, suddenly transported, all translations for that Greek word. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, so the dead and the living are all caught up, raptured in the air to meet the Lord. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the last we hear about this Ethiopian. We're never given his name, but the last thing we hear about him, he went on his way rejoicing. Oh my goodness, I wish I could have seen the the rest of that story. He was just praising God, having a wonderful time as he returned back to Ethiopia. And again, we can only speculate, but I'm quite sure when this guy got back to the palace and to the queen, he could not keep quiet about what kind of a day he had just had. He would have spread the good news far and wide through Ethiopia. So, we've come to the end of Acts 8. And remember, in Acts 1-8, we have sort of an outline for the entire book of Acts. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. I call that phase one. And in Judea and Samaria... That's phase two. We've now entered into and completed phase two. The gospel has now been spread throughout Judea, spread throughout Samaria, and we're now starting to move beyond. Maybe indirectly, but the gospel is already moving beyond the confines of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria we certainly know it's now on its way to Ethiopia. Ethiopia is about to be evangelized by this on-fire treasurer, nameless man, we don't know who he is, but he went on his way rejoicing, and I have to believe he was fired up when he got back to his country, and he would have shared the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody who would lend an ear. So, as we come to a conclusion tonight, we've completed the first eight chapters, we've completed phase one and phase two of Acts 1-8, and now something highly significant takes place in chapter nine, and then we launch full steam into phase 3 in chapter 10 of Acts with Peter taking the gospel directly to the Gentiles. More about that later, and next time we will jump right in to Acts chapter 9 where we come to a real important pivot point in the entire book of Acts, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the enemy of the church, the the madman who is breathing out threats, locking up men and women, and hauling them off to jail for their faith in Christ. Saul of Tarsus is soon to become Paul 
the apostle. And what an amazing conversion it is, and what a profound influence this one man would have, not only on the early church, but on you and me. That's where we'll close tonight, and we'll pick it up next time in Acts chapter 9 on page 93 of our notes. Let's pray. Father, you're an awesome God. Your ways are so far beyond our ways. And Lord, we've seen, especially in this last segment of Acts 8, you do things in ways that seem strange to us, how you would pull Philip right out from a mighty revival that he was having in Samaria, send him out into the middle of the desert to meet one man. But such are your ways. And Lord, you teach us many important lessons through this story that one man is very precious to you. One man is very important to you. And you will move heaven and earth to send an apostle, an evangelist, or a witness to cross paths with that one individual. God, I am praying tonight for each and every one of us that you would prepare divine appointments, prepare individuals or groups, but prepare hearts that are already interested already wanting to hear the good news of the gospel, just as this Ethiopian eunuch had already been prepared. He wanted to know what the scriptures in Isaiah were talking about. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. And God, you have prepared men and women, young and old, all around us with a hunger, with a thirst, with a desire to know the Lord Jesus Christ. God, direct our paths to them. Let our paths divinely cross with theirs. Set up these divine opportunities, divine appointments, divine open doors where we can boldly and confidently Share the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that you've already prepared the soil of their hearts as good ground to receive that seed of your word, and that it would bring forth the fruit of salvation. Oh God, what an amazing story. And Lord, let us be like Philip, sensitive to your voice, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that even when it doesn't make sense to our natural minds, that we would not lean to our own understanding, but we would trust you and we would obey you implicitly. Without questioning your command, we would move out in faith, even if you're directing us to the desert, even if you're sending us in the exact opposite direction of what we might have chosen. Help us, O God, to move in that kind of faith and obedience. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for the miraculous way in which you used this man, Philip. And you're not done with him yet. We'll meet him later on in the book of Acts as Evangelist Philip. And Lord, he was still doing your work. We thank you for raising up Philips, raising up Stevens, raising up men and women full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of power to carry on your gospel ministry, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the four corners of the earth and even across the street to the other street corner. Use us O God, as witnesses, as evangelists, as sharers of the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we commit ourselves into your hands tonight. Lord, in these last days, 
even though darkness is increasing, let the light, let the grace, let the power of God also increase. You've told us that where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. Bring an even greater grace, a greater anointing, a greater power upon your people in these last days, so that with boldness we can speak your word and see that word confirmed with many coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, many obeying you in the waters of baptism, and yes, many being baptized with the fullness and the fire of the Holy Spirit. God, we give ourselves into your hands tonight. We surrender to your plans, to your purposes. Have your way with us. Bless us. Keep us. Make your face shine upon us. Show us your grace and your favor. Turn your face toward each and every one. And Lord, give us your shalom, your peace, wholeness, and wellness now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.